It was difficult attending meetings and realising there were so few women on the platform. And I thought, right, well, I'm going to write to them and say, I want to give a lecture. Hello and welcome to the Rhinoplasty podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. We are continuing in our April the leading ladies theme proudly brought to us by pentax loops pentax loops have changed the game for me completely um operating rhinoplasty without loops that can protect your neck can only hurt so those of you who are interested in wanting to perhaps get a discount on pentax loops you're going to have to wait until the end of the show i'll give out the information and you can email people and get uh, ask for a discount so tonight's or today's um podcast comes all the way from Sydney, Australia. Uh, this is a very special woman that we have on the show today. She was the, one of the finalists of the nearly 140 people who spoke at the World Rhinoplasty Day last year, proudly brought to you by Saucer. But she is not just a facial plastic surgeon, she's also an artist. And not just a normal artist, but a portrait artist of all things. Um, Jill Dunlop, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks very much. It's a very great pleasure to be here. So I'm really looking forward to what you've put together here. What stands out to me is excellence. Everything you, I've, all the interaction I've had with you, you're absolutely excellent in what you're doing. Um, you've actually put together a video for us to tell your story about this marriage between art and rhinoplasty. So I'm very excited to see that. So before we even get to the video, um, you're going to be telling your story, but I'd love to know how you found the two complementing each other in terms of you as a facial plastic surgeon and understanding the anatomy so deeply of the face. And yet, on the other hand, you work in various mediums. Yes, portrait art seems to be your main medium, but how do these two complement each other? I think it comes into play when I'm putting together grafts and I can look at the material and because I work 3D all the time, whether it's painting or sculpture, I can imagine what's going to come out of that piece of nasal septum and I can cobble things together that um, would be laborious if you had to measure things. So I think it really helps in that regard. So I'm just used to 3D things in space. So w w as a young boy, I went to various art lessons. My mum was an artist and she got us very involved. And what I then went into this canoeing career and into sports and kind of missed the art and I've slowly come back into it. And I, I clearly remember about six years ago in Dallas at one of the American meetings, they had a parallel session on sculpture. And that was fascinating seeing mm -hmm. these surgeons who used to using their hands and their, scalp their scalpels to now we were told to, we had to build noses, we had to change noses, and, and I've since that carried that through quite a lot. I love, I love trying a, each of my family members to try and emulate what their nose looks like, and it's actually very difficult. Mm, yeah. And the easiest thing to work in is wax. Yeah, I find um, clay is just a little uh, gumby, um, clunky. Uh, but wax tends to hold things, but you do have to warm it up. But eventually the warmth of your hands will help uh, push the wax in the right direction. Okay, well, that's interesting because I've used clay. And I know Boris Kacha uh, in, in, in Istanbul, he, he almost every week on, on Instagram, there's something about him working in clay and how he tries to get all these angles on the nose. Mm. 
Mm. No, I think it's easier with wax and you can heat an instrument a bit like a soldering iron and cut into it with heat as well. Uh, you can heat up wax in a saucepan and add things um, onto it. A frying pan would be just as good. Um, wax is fabulous if you want to cast it into bronze. So uh, I haven't done much sculpting in the last little while because I've spent my time doing lots of portrait commissions, but if I had to sculpt in anything, it would be wax. Awesome. So Gillian, before we, we go into the, this great video that you've put together for us, I've got, because um, and. It's very interesting because should your daughter be, in, be a rhinoplasty surgeon or an artist, and we're going to get to that answer at the end, I, I had a question for you. If for the, for the patients who are listening to this podcast, what are the important messages you'd like to give out to patients, perhaps somebody who's considering to want to have a rhinoplasty? I think you have to be in the right frame of mind. I think you have to be prepared for um, change, and that's not always easy. Some people are excited, they always want to have their bump removed, but you have to remember we're artists of the face, and the face will look different. Uh, and there is a transition period. Now, luckily for us, people quickly forget what their nose used to look like. Um, I think these days, with our our wonderful surgical techniques and our fabulous tuition from people like um, Toriyumi and Rick Davies, it's the safest time to ever have a rhinoplasty. You know, I've been uh, uh, performing ENT procedures for many, many years, but it has never, ever been safer. No, absolutely, so I agree. Assured, but be psychologically prepared. Oh, thank you for that. So without any further ado, we're going to roll in this video that you've done um, and then we'll catch up again at the end. Should your daughter be an artist? Hello, I'm Dr. Gillian Dunlop, an ENT and facial plastic surgeon from Sydney, Australia. My surgical career pales in comparison to the great names such as Dean Toriumi and Rick Davies. But I do have a passion, and it is that passion which has led to my dual careers as both a portrait artist and as a surgeon. What I hope to emphasize today is that a career in the arts, although praiseworthy, has limitations. Having parallel careers as both an artist and as a surgeon is daunting for me, but one career does not exist without the other. They are symbiotic. One propels and informs the other. I would not be a successful portrait artist if I were not already an ENT surgeon. To explain, I want to tell you the story of the princess, the pea and the professor. One day, a professor came to see me. He said, I ate my lunch too fast and I think a pea has gone up the back of my nose. Ah. I'll have a look with the endoscope. So I sprayed him with cofenalcane and we waited for the local anesthetic to kick in. We chatted away and then realized we both knew Professor Jan McCready, his neighbor and my mentor. As expected, there was no pee in the nose and much reassurance was given. That night, 
Jan McCready called me to thank me for looking after her neighbour and colleague. We talked about my ENT career, my portraits, my family. Then Jan asked if I would like to paint a portrait for the University of Sydney of Dame Quentin Bryce. At that stage, she was the governor of the state of Queensland. It was my good fortune that whilst painting her, she became Her Excellency, the Governor General of Australia. My point is this, life is what happens along the way. Machiavelli said, success depends on fortune, timing and circumstance. Painting Dame Quentin Bryce led to a meteoric rise in my portrait career. All my life, I have wanted to be an artist and now my medical career and my medical colleagues had given me a huge leg up. My training as an artist didn't come easily. I was born into a medical dynasty. Here we all are at my younger brother's graduation. All six children studied medicine, a record for the University of Sydney. Where was my art in this medical dynasty? How did I learn to paint this life-size portrait of the opera singer Teddy Tahu Rhodes? As kids, we went to boarding school. My father wasn't going to pay for me to learn to paint, so I took French, German and Latin and top levels in science, maths and English. But I still found time to draw. This is a copy of a Rubens portrait I scribbled on the back of a science school program at 16. I was always more passionate about art than science. Without any training in art, I drew this in the local graveyard just after the leaving certificate. Although I had ducked the school, I declared I was going to art college. My father's reply was, I'm not supporting you for the next 35 years, get a job. So I reluctantly fell back on the family tradition of a medical career, inheriting textbooks, a half skeleton and the brain someone borrowed from the uni in 1970. We gave it back after my younger brother graduated. I did my best to go to watercolour classes on the weekends in first, second and third year uni, but by fourth year, it was too hard to juggle uni study and art, so I had to put the art lessons on ice. Sadly, with shift work and later fellowship exams, that ice age lasted 12 years. The moment I finished my ENT fellowship, I went straight to art school. It was difficult as a married woman living in Australia to then enrol in the two-year American Facial Plastics Program. So I took the senior registrar position in Melbourne. Firstly, so I could fly home 800 kilometres to my husband in Sydney each weekend. And secondly, so I could attend the Melbourne School of Art. Now the art school was right next door to the Daily Planet. For those of you who don't know Melbourne, this was the biggest brothel in Australia. So big, it was listed on the stock exchange. There I was, a newly minted ENT surgeon, desperate to train as an artist, but mistaken for an off-duty hooker by the cab driver. The next year, I undertook a six-month fellowship with the well-known British ENT surgeons, Professor Valerie Lund, Dr. Ian Mackay and Dr. Tony Bull. 
This was in London, which gave me the opportunity to visit wonderful art museums and attend the Chelsea School of Art. My second career in art was back on track. I came back to Sydney in 1997 and was caught up in a whirlwind of setting up my own practice. I still found time to paint and gravitated towards portraiture. This portrait was hung in the prestigious National Archibald Exhibition in 2004. The subject is Lucy Cullerton, my then teacher and a successful contemporary artist. This portrait of the actor John Gaydon won the People's Choice Award in 2006 at the Salon de Refuse. Fortunately for me, success led to success. By then I was painting regular commissions. Among my subjects were eminent Australians such as the wife of the prime minister, politicians, captains of industry, actors and entertainers. Here are three state governors I have painted. Dame Murray Bashir, former governor of New South Wales. Sir Philip Bennett, former governor of Tasmania and former head of the Australian Defence Forces. And Professor David de Kretzer, former governor of Victoria. So how do I paint a portrait? What is the process? Let me explain with the example of the portrait of the Chief Justice John Pascoe for the Family Law Court of Australia, a commission I was recently honoured to receive. Essentially, I assess the person, then I make a plan. As a portrait artist, I am merely a conduit. I now paint from life. I paint what I see. I don't just mean the external features of a person, but rather the character or emotion they embody. There is no language more universal than the language of emotion. That is what true art taps into. Be it the art of painting, sculpture, or the art of music. On meeting the Chief Justice, I became aware of his resolute commitment to change in the Family Law Court of Australia. I therefore decided that the message or emotion to be painted was his resolute character. This is reflected in the choice of composition. When you view the portrait, you will note the use of the triangular format because it lends stability to the work. The gaze directed to the right this speaks of his determination to bring change to the court's modus operandi. Central to the persona of the Chief Justice is his strong commitment to and reliance on Buddhist teaching. I felt this should be included in the form of the text he clasps in his left hand. To capture the simplicity of the Buddhist teaching he so admires, I chose a limited palette of four colors, cadmium red, yellow ochre, titanium white and ivory black. Painting from life is a joint venture between the artist and the subject. We began with a photo shoot in my studio. This helped us decide on the triangular composition. From 80 photos, I selected three, then painted three small undetailed images from these photos. John, with the advice of his wife, Jane, selected a standing pose since it projected a more resolute image than that which could be gleaned from a seated pose. I then created a thumbnail sketch in pencil in three basic tones, light, medium, and dark. 
The secret is to keep the shape simple. Likeness is not about rendering small forms and details. It's about the structure and the gesture of the head. It's about getting the shapes and masses in the right proportion and in the right place. That is how we recognise someone across a football field. Over the last seven years, I have periodically taken portrait classes in Nashville, Tennessee. My tutor, Michael Shane Neal, the president of the Portrait Society of America, has generously allowed me to use images from his class in demonstration of this concept. Firstly, we separate the shape of what is in the light from the shape of what is in the shadow. We then use this change in colour temperature to make the form turn in space, to look rounded rather like an egg. These shapes are broken down into smaller shapes and tones. Not until the very end are details added. Likeness has so much more to do with the relationship of shapes rather than a shopping list of eye, eye, nose, mouth. Details do make the image more interesting, but it is surprising how little detail we need in order to recognise the person. Note this way of creating an image is in stark contrast to a photograph where all edges are sharp and there are plenty of details. Next time you go to a modern art museum, look for this. If it seems like a photograph, it probably is. In fact, the image was photoshopped, projected onto the canvas and then painted over the top. 20 years ago, before the widespread use of projectors, I was taught a similar technique at the National Art School in Sydney. To create an accurate image, we would grid a portrait photograph, grid a canvas of the same dimensions, and transcribe the image across in charcoal. Colour was then added in paint using the photograph rather than a model for reference. This resulted in a very recognisable portrait with many details and many sharp edges. But the human eye is different. When you look at me in your central gaze, I'm in focus. But everything in the peripheral gaze is in soft focus. Painting from life imitates this. Sharp edges are then reserved for important details, reserved for the focus of attention. These days, that is why I prefer to paint from real life. It is a more truthful representation of how we actually see people. So before the formal portrait of the Chief Justice was begun, one two-hour session was dedicated to a small portrait study, just his head and shoulders. I was exploring his features while John, of course, was meditating. Painting from life takes longer than painting from a photograph, but the time involved prevents it from becoming a frozen moment. My perception of the Chief Justice evolved over time. Photographs lack this rich resource. We had six meetings in my studio, each lasting two hours. The Chief Justice posed in 15 to 20 minute sessions, each followed by 10 minutes of chat and cups of tea. To have one's portrait painted should be a pleasurable experience, not just a diary entry. And finally, you may ask, 
When is the formal portrait finished? When nothing I add makes the message any clearer. The message being his resolute character. How do I balance two careers, portraiture and surgery? How much time do I spend on art compared to surgery? The answer, not nearly enough. I have always tried to be a part-time surgeon, but inevitably I end up working full-time. Curiously, when you restrict entry to your practice, you just get busier. So why don't I give up surgery? There's a very old concept of noblesse oblige that dates back to medieval times. Essentially, it means those to whom much is given, much is expected. Early in my career, I was given the second female ENT position in the state of New South Wales. That was a privilege, but with privilege comes responsibility. The responsibility to use the skills I was taught to the best of my ability. Surgery is the most marvellous career. We have the capacity to allow people to breathe, sleep soundly and feel confident in their appearance. Surgery is a happy career. Patients are very grateful and at the end of the day, I feel I have repaid some of that debt or obligation, which is noblesse oblige. My particular skill set is reconstructive surgery of the nose and ears. I won't walk away from surgery because the skills I have acquired in rhinoplasty and otoplasty make people, especially little kids, feel they look normal again, less stigmatised. I've made my work my hobby and my hobby my work. Rhinoplasty for me is art. It's sculpture on the living body. Now, sculpture is about the reflection of light over changing planes. In rhinoplasty, I recreate those normal planes and therefore a normal reflection of light. To explain, here is an excerpt from my website video. In my surgery, I use my skills as an artist. Painting and sculpture are about looking at the way the light falls on an object. The line made by the reflection of light, which artists call the light reflex, gives the sculpture form and shape. This is my copy of Degas, The Little Dancer, a work in progress. When working on the sculpture, I am constantly looking at the way the light falls. Now, in one of my portraits here, you can see it's the light that gives the nose form and shape. In rhinoplasty, if you can get that light reflex right, the nose will photograph well. So my art enhances my surgery. My reputation as an artist provides a point of difference in the crowded rhinoplasty market. People will even travel vast distances to have a rhinoplasty performed by an artist.
Conversely, my work as a surgeon has propelled my career as a portrait artist. As a surgeon, I mix in circles of people and institutions that readily commission portraits. I'm known as the surgeon who paints. This portrait I showed you earlier is of Barbara Williams, who donated $42 million to the Rodney Williams and Garnet Pass Foundation for Medical Research. My portrait of Professor Michael Grigg, the former president of the College of Surgeons, hangs in the college in Melbourne. I've also painted five or six ENT surgeons and several physicians. Professor Jerry McCafferty, who at one time looked after every Aboriginal child with ear disease in Queensland. Dr. Ted Beckenham, premier Sydney ENT surgeon who passed away in 2013. This portrait is now the title page of the Australian ENT online journal. This is a portrait of my father. He said, I'm not supporting you for the next 35 years, get a job. Well, 35 years have passed and now I understand his reasoning. He made sure I had a means of being financially independent. Would I recommend a career in art? Five years ago, I was sitting in the office at home and my husband's mobile phone buzzed next to his computer. Then it buzzed again and a third time. I checked the text to make sure it was not something important. The texts were from his girlfriend, the girlfriend I didn't know about. Family breakdown is full of heartache, but at a practical level, it is very expensive. Some women simply can't afford to leave. Because I had a profession and income outside of my artistic career, I had options. This alone is the most compelling reason for not just pursuing a career in the arts. You need something to fall back on, some means of financial independence. Money doesn't make you happy, but it does give you choices. Although I prefer not to talk about my personal life and recent divorce, it is relevant here. To the young ladies in the audience and the fathers of daughters, I say this. Your profession translates into choices. Some women, such as artists, musicians, actresses, do not have this level of independence and that curtails their options. Should your daughter or son be an artist? To quote my father, no, get a job. Or to put it in more politically correct terms, find a career that gives you independence. Find something you are passionate about and pursue that career to the best of your ability. Maybe that career will have an artistic angle. Above all, try to leave the world a better place. Thank you once again for inviting me to talk. It was an honour, but it's teamwork. No one gets there alone. We all, as surgeons, have a wonderful team behind us, and I want to thank and acknowledge them as well. Thank you. Sure, Joel, that, that is uh, super inspiring. Uh, I think the, the amazing thing to me about that story is that you can't hide. You've, you've, you've 
an artist brings things to life that we don't always see. And it's just amazing that you've been able to marry these two incredible careers and be as good as you are in both of them. Well, thank you. Um, uh, I think it's been very fortunate to find a career uh, for me uh, that's artistic. I, I really enjoy what I do. I love going to work. And I enjoy the patients. And I think they can see that I enjoy it as well. So a question I have for you, you, you spoke a lot about the people who've influenced your life and have mentored you along the way. So who are you busy mentoring and influencing? Oh, gosh. Um, in Australia, there are very few female facial plastic surgeons, but uh, I have Xenia in Melbourne, so she's 800 kilometres away. But we would talk on the phone every couple of months, whether it's about difficult patients or whether we're doing an M&M meeting together over the phone. Um, but I also mentor... Uh, nursing staff in a way um, I think that we should always look beyond our own cohort and always remember that there are people who look up to us and the best thing you can do I believe is just express interest in their lives and their lives of their family hmm. so so Jill the two areas I want to just touch on when we bring this to a close the one is what have been the challenges for you as a woman in facial plastic surgery? Because this, the, the theme for the month is the leading lady. So I want to kind of almost lean in towards the negative and the difficult times, and then we'll speak about the good times. So what have been the hard things for you, and how have you overcome those hard things? Um, I think it, it was difficult attending meetings, uh, the American Academy meetings, and realising there were so few women on the platform. So in 2014, I'd had an article published in the Annals, and I thought, right, well, I'm going to write to them and say, I want to give a lecture. <laughs> so I did, and I talked about rhinoplasty and art, and they put me in the opening session of the opening day in 2015. So <laughs> it was a little brazen of me, but I just felt that the tide had to turn, and I'm very um, chuffed to think that there are now so many women, so many American women, I'm Australian, but um, I, I do look to America as a leading country, and I, I think it's wonderful to see uh, the change. And it's in our lifetime, which is so special. Well, that's great. And I will, I mean, thank you on behalf of all the ladies out there. It's, it's been just in my kind of short career, seeing how many more ladies are lecturing and operating. I mean, our, the Secretary General of our Rhinoplasty Society has just become a professor um, at the University of Pretoria. That's Professor Nkinsani Chowakimalinga. So it's in Africa, things are great. So then now leaning into like the positives in terms of what have been the good things for you and how do you see the future of, of ladies in rhinoplasty? I think the young ladies are much more organized. They seem to have um, chat rooms and they're very supportive, whereas when there were just a trickle of us going through, we were still individuals. And um, I think we were lucky uh, to have peers who just accepted us as colleagues. You know, they didn't think of us as different for being women. Um, the young ladies now are an active force and I think that they're going to 
force change. That's great. Eh? So I think I want to give a shout out to the listeners out there of the really influential rhinoplasty surgeons, uh, the presidents of the European societies mm -hmm. and the American societies. I think it's time that you guys got one of our own, Dr. Gillian Dunlop, to come and do some <laughs> portraits of yourselves. <laughs> uh, Maybe I could sure. do a sculpture class. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that would be great. I, I mean, we would love it. I'd love to get you out here and we have a congress in South Africa and we do a whole, uh, it would be fantastic. Um, so, Jill, from my side, I just want to say thank you so much. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for that inspirational video you've put together. It's so good to chat to you. Um, and I just wish you all the very, very best for your future. And please don't paint too much and forget about the too much operating. Try and get that balance right. <laughs> uh, my pleasure. And thank you once again for the very great privilege of chatting. Fantastic. So those of you who've listened right to the end of this inspiring um, podcast, I'm going to now tell you who you can get hold of for these discounts on the Pentax loops. It's kind of a bit weird. You've got this super high technology of prism loops with a wide view. And here we're talking about art and painting and stuff. But anyway, you want to be able to see what you're doing. So get hold of these things and save your neck in the same time. So go to www.pentaxloops.com. So that is P-E-N-T-A-X-L-O-U-P-E-S.com. Email them. Tell them you listen to the Rhinoplasty podcast and you want them to give you a killer deal on a pair of loops. So thank you for everybody. We're going to continue next week with another interview. Um, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.